And my mom was like, so you don't believe in Jesus? I'm like, I believe he was probably a person. Mm -hmm. There's some evidence that yes, there was a person named Jesus. I don't believe that he was, you know, Mm -hmm. born of a virgin, all of that. No, I don't, mom. And her question is, are you still a good person? And (laughs) I said, because I'm me, I'm not really clear what good means, (laughs) but (laughs) yes, I want to help people. I care about people. I like Mm -hmm. people and I really love you. Mm -hmm. That worked enough for her. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Brian Peck here, sitting in for Ryan for part two of a conversation I had with Carolyn Golden and James Connolly about how and why we believe. Together we explored the psychology of belief as it relates to the deconversion process and the strain this often puts on relationships. If you've not had a chance to listen to part one, it's available at lifeaftergod.org or wherever you download your podcast. As you may recall, Carolyn and James are both clinical psychologists with a personal and professional interest in why we humans believe. In addition to a rewarding clinical practice, Carolyn also teaches several courses at the Boise State University, including a course she recently developed entitled The Psychology of Belief. James is currently writing a book in which he explores the psychology of how and why we believe and illustrates these concepts through the lens of his LDS background. In addition to specializing in religious-based trauma as a clinical social worker, I also offer online support to former believers, equipping them to navigate their deconversion with clarity and purpose so they can get on with creating a life of vitality and meaning beyond belief. The three of us previously worked together in a clinic, and although our career paths have diverged, our friendship remains one of the most meaningful relationships in my life. Several of you have reached out since the last episode and shared how helpful our conversation was to you personally. Thanks so much for sharing. Do you know that feeling when you introduce friends to each other and they really hit it off and you're like, I have the best friends? Well, it's true. I really do have amazing friends and insightful mentors and a supportive community and a committed partner and two boys who daily amaze and inspire me to be the best version of myself. As James mentions in this episode, we are social creatures who are driven to connect with each other. This desire to connect explains in part why it's so painful to experience people pulling away from us based on different beliefs. My hope is that by focusing more on how we believe, we can unite around the shared human experience of living with a believing brain. Of course, what we believe will continue to be important for us, but maybe understanding the how and the why will allow us to relax our grip a little bit on the what. In today's conversation, James talks about some of the challenges 
of going through a deconversion when your partner is still a believer. Mixed faith relationships are common and can be maintained, but they often test the strongest of bonds as a couple renegotiates the essential elements of their relationship. Let's pick up the conversation where we left off last episode. A quick note, James references something Carolyn said in the previous episode, where she pointed out the way our brain evolved to focus on differences and why it's important to look for similarities if we value empathy and want to be connected to other humans. With that, let's jump back into the conversation. I want to give a little bit of context as far as maybe a little bit more context as far as what Carolyn was talking about. She mentioned uh, before, if, if you're someone who wants to make connections with other people and, and, and have that connection, and we are such social creatures mm-hmm. that it's not really a choice again, if we want to, oh, yeah. it is just biologically, we are driven to connect with other mm-hmm others of our species and be there with them. And so once we have made those connections and they start and we see them as starting to separate or, or start seeing that mm-hmm. that disconnection, whether we're cognitively aware of that or not, which we're generally not, that is painful. And so when our parents or our family members or our friends see us disconnecting, that they are experiencing pain just like mm-hmm. we are experiencing pain when we feel like they're rejecting us or trying right putting up a wall. And and so, and so I think acknowledging we get, so I got so, you know, stuck on like, okay, yeah, that I'm experiencing this mm-hmm. and then I wanted to be heard. Right. Okay. And I love to be heard as those of you who know me <laughs> know, and that's not the most effective way. It wasn't the most effective way for me. And I wouldn't recommend that. So uh-huh. yeah. Explain more about that. So, when you're saying in, in a relationship where you're disclosing, like, I no longer believe the same things as you and my beliefs have shifted kind of significantly. And this sense of like, I want you to acknowledge my pain. This is painful for me. I want to be heard. And then maybe not, not recognizing that the other person is also experiencing similar suffering around that. Help me understand why that wanting to be heard and, and, and validating that as like, it's, that's useful to relationship, of course. Yes. But then also being willing to hear, like, like help me understand more about that process. It's okay to be heard too, but mm-hmm. we, you know, it's more effective if we listen to understand and then, mm-hmm. you know, share afterwards. And so I think just going into it, knowing that even though it doesn't seem like it should be painful, mm-hmm. there's going to be a sense of disconnection, which most likely will be painful for this person. Right. So, and, and so they will experience suffering right. in some way. And so to go into it, knowing that's going to happen, I think it's just helpful. And then being able to listen to and hear how that affects them and acknowledging mm-hmm. that before, you know, and, 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 and really allowing them to know that we're there and we want to hear what their experiences, what yeah. their thoughts, what their feelings on are, and then we can share a little more of what our thoughts and feelings are. But to keep that empathy and that mm-hmm. connection there during the process, otherwise that disconnection can be traumatic. Right. So, so, so maybe in more concrete terms. I think knowing that you're about to hurt somebody, right? Right. With with just being who you are and believing what you believe, 
doing life the way it works for you. And you know that based on particular concepts that a person you love holds, that will be painful to hear. And you're, you're suggesting that if we can listen more. So help me understand, like, we need to say, I'm, I'm telling you this thing I no longer believe. And then all of a sudden, boom, like that's, that's their suffering there on their part and on your part, because mm-hmm. you don't want to hurt someone. You're also, the fear of rejection is very strong in that moment. And then, so, so like, I'm, I, I guess I'm assuming that when you're talking about listening, that you've already kind of disclosed, like there's this thing that's happened with me. Yes. And then from there, now my goal isn't, I need to help you understand this well enough that you'll still accept me. But you're saying, I want to listen to your reaction response to that. I want to hear what this is like for you. Like, is that, is that what we're saying? Yeah. And then, uh, I think accepting that you are going to hurt them, Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't seem like it should hurt them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter. You still will. And so, and then not getting wrapped up in our own story as like, they're rejecting me. There's something wrong, you know, like I've talked about before there, that these are their true colors. It's like, no, this is what a person in pain acts like. And so if we expect them to have some emotion, Mm -hmm. which they oftentimes do, and to be able to move through that with them, that will be more helpful than getting defensive and like, well, you shouldn't, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm, right. I'm my own person mm-hmm. and you're trying to like shut me down, tell me what to mm-hmm. do and control me. That doesn't work so well. So, I mean, as you're saying that so often where we all suffer is around, I don't want to feel what I'm feeling. And so just as you're describing this kind of defensive stance of like, well, I get to believe whatever I want to believe. And, you know, furthermore, your beliefs are harming me and you shouldn't believe that. And like, all those kind of defensive things maybe are primarily about not wanting to feel pain ourselves, not wanting to recognize that some of these relational experiences are really painful and rightfully so I'm not rightfully so, but just like by virtue of, of, of being that we care about each other and beliefs can get in the way of, of relationships. Like it is going to be painful, but just being aware of that, recognizing that you will be experiencing pain and noticing the the instinct might be to um, be defensive and, and acknowledging like that's not going to be useful for you. They might be defensive. Like Carolyn was saying earlier, like when you disclose like your beliefs are different, then it's tempting to, or just kind of automatic to start reinforcing one's own beliefs. <laughs> that's going to happen and not enough going down that path with them because, because so often it's like, here, I'll give you this book of apologetics and I'll give you this book from Dawkins or I'll give you this, you know, and it's like thinking that somehow that's going to salvage the relationship. And what you're saying is if we can't be with the pain and go through that and acknowledge our, our shared humanity, then we're not going to, we're not going to build weather that. I actually have a odd story that will kind of hopefully relate to this and it uh, Carolyn's involved. So speaking of Joshua Green, uh, he, he's done a lot of, uh, research as far as moral psychology mm-hmm. and my memory of it. But basically he, he came up with lots of, of different questions and, and, uh, asked people how much they would need to be paid to do specific things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one of them, you know, was I do it for free. Right. I do it for a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. I would do it for a million dollars or I wouldn't do it for any amount of money. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions was stick yourself with a clean hypodermic needle. Mm-hmm. How much would you do that for? Yeah. Stick 
a child with a clean hypodermic needle. How much would you do that for? And then uh, Carol and I were talking about that, and I said, oh, that reminds me, I need my bi-weekly shot. Mm-hmm. And so I get it ready, and Carolyn's watching me get it ready, and I said, you want to give it to me? <laughs> and she... So no, no, no experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was but funny because yeah. when you when you were telling me the thought experiment, I was like, I don't know, I might stick a kid for a hundred bucks. <laughs> that sounds really awful, right? But I was like, I mean, certainly for a million, one hundred percent, I'd be like, hey, kid, yeah. college fun, hold still, <laughs> right? But in my mind, I was like, there might be something wrong with me. I might do it for a hundred bucks. And then I had this moment. And I was like. Nope, never mind. <laughs> yep, not for a much. We really don't like to hurt other people right. unless we have to, right? right? Carolyn then said, if I had to do it mm-hmm. for you, like if it was, you know, next, mm-hmm. you know, I was going into anaphylactic shock or something, she could do it right. for Even me. you just couldn't have done it, but yeah. you needed it. If you had broken your arm mm-hmm. or something else, yeah. But so we don't like to hurt people. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that we're going to hurt them is helpful because then we're able to work through that suffering and acknowledge that it is there mm-hmm. for them and for us. Yeah. Would you call it the nopiness? The nopiness. There's a, yeah. a lot of nopiness going on with yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> and the nopiness came when the first time I was supposed to give me a shot mm. and I thought, no problem. Mm. I got it already. And I look at that needle and I look at my leg and I'm like, nope. nope. <laughs> and I didn't expect that. I thought I would just be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I had to just breathe and like do it. And then, it became an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think there's both of you described this very visceral kind of automatic response that no, I don't do the thing that hurts somebody unless I have enough reason to do that. And even still, it's difficult to do because, like, I know like this shot is important to my health and well being, and yet I still don't want to do it because there's this kind of response. So, kind of bringing this to this experience of sharing with a loved one that I no longer believe, you know, I think some of those experiences are, are real in, in a very similar way. You know, like we experience them in that same kind of way and, and our loved ones experience that in the same kind of way. Yeah. Like we have this kind of built in response. If, you know, our kid trips and falls, we feel their pain. And if a person no longer believes and that means bad things will happen to them within this concept that we have of our, of our beliefs, then yeah, it, it can be really, really painful to, to notice that. And so we've been talking a lot about, you know, what can we do to make this process not necessarily easier? I don't know the right word. Um, recognizing that it will be painful, but it's important. So how, how can we go through this in a way that as helpful in a way that's healthy, in a way that acknowledges our suffering, acknowledges the suffering of our family members. I mean, and I think the the audience that will be listening to this podcast later will be wanting, like, I guess, some concrete things to do, and then uh, being aware of the process as well. So, I mean, I, I know if we were to list, like, well, these are the five things that you should do, and it'll make your your transition or your deconversion easier, then it would be tempting to just kind of hold on to those and like, okay, I did the five things, like, process. Be better. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, I think we, we've reflected a lot on the different processes at play here. Are there other kind of takeaway? I think about the timing thing because mm-hmm. I think so many people because they know it's going to be painful or they're afraid. 
they don't tell people until they can't stand it anymore. So often that's the case. And so then it, when you're in that desperation place, it's really hard to tolerate other people's feelings. Right. Okay. And so I think that's part of a recipe for a disaster. How do you do it sooner? And what would you... What you're saying is so true, right? We come to this place of like, okay, I've gone through this process and I, I've not wanted to hurt family members for years, maybe. And finally, you're just like, I just can't anymore, right? I have to... I just, I don't want to continue hiding this piece from people who I'm close to or, or whatever the reason might be. And so then all of a sudden you're, you're just like, blah, here, I need to share it. The other option is that we, um, you know, just take forever and never actually get there because we're afraid of that. And and so I know people who will disclose early on, like, this is, you know, where, what I've, I've, I've arrived at this, at this point, but what are some maybe more systematic ways or... It's so much of it is about giving up the myth of control, Mm -hmm. right? Because you want to control their reaction in order to minimize their pain, in order to minimize the chance of rejection. And I think there's a difference in terms of being like graceless versus giving up control. I think you can be mindful and careful and kind without trying to control how you're going to feel, how they're going to feel. And so with that desperation thing, I would say, Either do it sooner or later, right? <laughs> if what you're feeling is desperate, connect to somebody else. Connect to somebody about your fear first mm-hmm. and maybe sit with that for a minute before you just go vomit on your loved ones. Yeah. Because no. then you have to clean up all the vomit. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's so true, though. And I think that's where, you know, communities like like Life After God and, and some of the work that I'm doing in, in deconversion, um, coaching and, and guide guidance, um, you know, just having someone to talk to and process through so that when you do have that conversation, it's not so much out of desperation. It's not so much out of reaction. Mm-hmm. It's more kind of thoughtful. And, and you can be with your own process a bit, uh, a bit more. And you can be with your loved one's process more because frankly, there's just more space for it. Yeah. yeah. So, and there's not, gonna, well, one, there's not going to be a perfect way of doing it. If we go with that story, that's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. But, our relationship doesn't have to drastically change. And mm. if we don't want it to, we can be assertive about that. So I, I, I was talking with a man a number of years ago who had left his religion mm-hmm. and he and his, he, he and his dad had been very, very close. Mm-hmm. And he had, he had told his dad that he no longer believed and he had noticed their relationship had shifted over the three or four weeks since then. He was sad about it and, uh, we could have talked about his loss and his sadness. And I just said, well, what was your relationship with your dad like before? And he explained how close it was and how good it was. Um, and so I said, do you still want to be that way? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what if you just told your dad, hey, dad, I told you this and I felt like our relationship has been a little bit distancy mm-hmm. and I don't want that. I actually love you and mm-hmm. love talking with you and I love our relationship and I want it to be as much the same as it can be. Mm-hmm. And he said, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And he did that. And that was all it took. Mm-hmm. Just that conversation with his dad. Mm-hmm. But I mean, not everyone's in that position when yeah. they're already that close and their family is like that. But sometimes it is just being assertive and being honest and mm-hmm. saying, I love you, man. I still yeah. want to have this relationship with you, even though some things have shifted. Yeah, and I can hear people reacting to what you're saying. Like, well, that sounds really simple to do. Like, if you just tell the person who you care about, like, 
I want to maintain this relationship. I want to be the same. And, and, and Or we and, can just say, I care about you. We don't yeah. have to mm-hmm. dictate how it's going to be. I still mm-hmm. love you. I still right. care about you. And I still want to be connected with you. Right. If and we, I'm committed to doing the work to make that happen as well as possible. Yeah. But saying that to someone mm-hmm. who you feel might reject you right then, mm-hmm. pretty damn scary. Or, or, or has rejected you yeah. by what they, how they responded or what they said. I mean, right. or like that, that becomes the perception at least. Like they no longer think I'm a moral person, right? And you're like, okay, so I know it might be hard for you to be connected to me, but I really do value our relationship and I want to do the work to make this um, as close as, as we can. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think yet yeah, that fear of rejection is why we probably don't say that more often. Because it's almost inviting ourselves to be rejected again. Yeah. I want to have this relationship with you and I've already felt like you've rejected me. It's far easier to say, well, I'm just done. Well, it's easier in the short term. Yeah. Right. You lose the relationship that's important to you. Right. And and that again goes back to this like being with the suffering that we experience, that they experience, finding ways to work through that. Yeah. We also want to make them responsible. They have one shot to get this right with us. Like, not always. I think sometimes mm-hmm. there's this thing where it's like, if they don't accept me, then I assume they're rejecting me in a, like a big way or a permanent way right. versus like they might be in shock or right. they might be sad or they might be scared and kind of saying like, hey, that didn't go great. Or if there's like actual mistreatment. So understanding that boundaries are a thing that we are also responsible for, Mm -hmm. which is like, I super love you. I'm super invested in you. What I can't tolerate is you always talking to me. Like probably now I eat babies or whatever the cliche is, right? right? Like (laughs) now I'm going to do all the things that, you know, you've never known me to do Mm, or, you know, depending on the person, like, let's be clear. I was already doing these things and then this happened, whatever their, you know, their particular thing is, Mm -hmm. but kind of being a little more transparent about our boundaries or just asking for what we need, Mm -hmm. right? Like I need to know, or I want to believe that, that our love is more important than our box on the census, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the person may or may not be able to give you that in that moment. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they'll never be able to give it to you. And so then it's just about how much space and time are you willing to give that? How much mm-hmm. advocacy are you willing to do? How much mm-hmm. of that stuff? And there's not, that's where there's really not a right answer. With, with, uh, as far as my, it's also been on your personality and your relationship mm-hmm. with whoever you're telling. Right. So for me, I didn't really even go through this process. I remember I have no clear memory of telling my parents. Mm-hmm. I just kind of talk to them like I always talk to them. I don't, I believe this and this and I share stuff mm-hmm. that I'm learning and reading with people, whether mm-hmm. they don't want to they do it or not. <laughs> uh, and so I just shared it with my parents. And my mom was like, so you don't believe in Jesus? I'm like, I believe he was a, probably a person. Mm-hmm. There's some evidence that, yes, there was a person named Jesus. I don't believe that he was, you know, mm-hmm. born of a virgin, all of that. No, I don't, mm-hmm. mom. And her question is, are you still a good person? <laughs> and That's I said, true. because I'm me, I'm not really clear what good means, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> yes, I want to help people. I care about people. I like mm-hmm. people. I don't want to hurt people mm-hmm. and I really love you. Mm-hmm. That worked enough for her. So right. she was okay. Now my mom is older and she's 
slipping into dementia. Mm -hmm. And so now she talks to me about Jesus Mm -hmm. and I don't remind her every day that I don't believe because I don't like sticking hypodermic needles yeah. In kids for no reason. <laughs> and so I, it's, it's not an issue for me. I just don't want right. to hurt her every sure. day because she forgets. Yeah. And so that's, I don't, I don't have an issue with that. Even though for me, I want to be very honest with those mm-hmm. with whom I'm close. Yeah. I don't have to break her heart again every day. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, and I, I don't think we do this intentionally, but so often those of us who have gone through this transition, we feel very much like we should tell people or like uh, kind of wear like wear it like a badge or something like I no longer believe or I'm agnostic or I'm an atheist and I think religion is bad and I think supernatural beliefs are like the bane of humanity or whatever and so we, we want to just constantly remind it and, and, and it feels almost like that is uh, reactionary in, at some level as well like like it's more important the what again back to the beginning of the, our conversation is more important the what of belief versus the how and and so you're describing with your mom like, like I I still believe what I believe or I my relationship with belief is is the same but I'm the how or the why is like why I don't just impose this belief or like yeah just share this belief with people for for no reason. <laughs> So my great grandma had Alzheimer's and she outlived all but one of her kids. And so they would still like, they told her when my grandma passed and she had a little bit of a moment of lucidity and just said like, that's not right. But you don't remind her every day. Hey, do you remember like three of your kids have died? Mm -hmm. Right. You don't do that. And so when she talks about them, you just like, you don't lie to her, but Mm -hmm. you also don't have to go, Hey, remember that super soul crushing facts. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so you just don't have to do that. I do wonder back to this, like we feel compelled to tell people Mm -hmm. if there's a difference in, so, like, I didn't come from an evangelical tradition, mm-hmm. right? So, there was not this notion of outward-facing religion. There's a lot of virtue signaling and stuff in mm-hmm. the group, but not a lot of this, like, go go find yeah. friends and bring them to church, right? That's not a thing. But but I still – I'm very much evangelical about lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, I do like to – I like to – tell people stuff. This is why we get into storytelling mode, right? And like, I have stuff I'm super passionate about. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't super passionate about telling people like, I don't believe this. I was mm-hmm. pretty reserved about that, but I was super passionate about telling people all this stuff that I was learning. Mm-hmm. And then the other stuff sort of happened from there. Cause then they need to know what box to put me in. Well, mm-hmm. like, are right. you an atheist at the time? I wasn't comfortable with that. I was like, I don't know. They're kind of angry. <laughs> Like, I still had that yeah, thing, sure. too, or, or you just, you know, you watch some videos of Dawkins, and you're just like, okay, I don't know that I'm super into the, like, that thing, you know? And so, I don't know, like, I like humanist stuff, and I would mm-hmm. still identify as that as well, but mm-hmm. now I'm also pretty comfortable with the A word. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't evangelical about that or about, like, transparency, necessarily. Mm-hmm. I just don't think I have the filter for it, where I'm just like, there, there wasn't a super ton of keeping secrets. Mm-hmm. It was just... Oh my gosh, did you know da da da? Or have you listened to Julia Sweeney or have you done these things? So, when Karen was sharing her conversion to Catholicism and ha- when her mom gave her permission yeah. to not believe, mm-hmm. that took away that, that rebelliousness piece or, the, or, or that I want to, you know, that, that individuation of I want to be my own person me, yeah. mm-hmm. thing. And so then she was, she felt more free mm-hmm. to make a choice than she moved to, and, and, and that's, pretty effective way to do it mm-hmm. with kids like if if you're in a faith and the kid says they isn't believe to say mm-hmm. you must 
that's not generally going to work right. with kids or especially adolescents. Mm-hmm. So you guys have both told me that I'm the most dangerous atheist you know because <laughs> I don't try to convert anyone. I just talk. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, really like, scary. You get behind. It really is. You get behind the barriers. And, and yeah, it doesn't have to be like nefarious or something. Like you're trying to do this thing without them knowing the way you approach others is more like I care about you as a human and these are interesting ideas and wouldn't it be great if we, you know, could talk about these interesting ideas about how our brains work because it's not even that you have an end goal in mind for them. Like I want to deconvert people. It's like, well, no, I just want people to to know how brains work. Fascinating how our brains work. Yeah, exactly. And I think we do that same forced choice idea of like, you will accept me or you will reject me versus like, Hey, I have some information for you. There might be a process that goes along with that, right? Yeah, and I like and that. Just not, not not just accepting versus rejecting. Right. Like maybe maybe it's okay if our loved ones are just really unsure about us, and maybe it's okay. And I think just being honest, maybe it's okay. If we're really kind of unsure about them. Like, why are you still believing these things? Like, well, I, that that feels uncomfortable. And then we still can connect on, on this more human level. So any other kind of ideas of like insights into a process or something that you did during your own process that you think might be useful uh, for those listening as they are kind of thinking about beliefs and their own beliefs and how that, you know, impacts their family members? Yeah. So it, I think you're asking me, which is hard because I generally do things really poorly or ineffectively and then learn from that mm-hmm. slowly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's an interesting question. I think approaching it with some intent of what you want mm-hmm. or what one wants out of it, but not a rigid intent. So, so re- like if the intent is I want to remain connected mm-hmm. with this person and I don't know how that's going to look, that might be helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. But if we get, really specific on how we want it to look and then we might get controlling. Yeah. I might poke at that even just a little bit and say this, I want, I want to remain connected, creates this other thing of, but I fear we're screwed. Yeah. Whereas if you communicate and you're clear on what you value and what you value in them and what, like to an extent you're willing to, to pay in terms of challenge, I think that creates less of this like false dichotomy mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Where it's like, so I super value you. I super value your relationship. And I want you to understand this about me, mm-hmm. right? Which is a little bit like, hey, I want you to understand this. You see what I'm saying with the I want to be connected? I, I, like, I, there's I, that, that fear-based piece. I think I do. And actually bring it up to a different, a different thing. Is, and, and that's like, I hadn't thought about this until you said that, you know, what am I willing to experience? What am, what am I willing to pay to do that? And so maybe not go with, with that. I want to remain connected so much, but come into it. Like I would, we're, we are down here in St. George, Utah right now. And there are some beautiful areas here and there are some beautiful brand new homes in these areas. And they're just so peaceful. It's amazing. I would love to have a home down here that is in these areas and they cost million plus I'm not willing to do what it takes mm-hmm. to have one of those houses down here 
I wouldn't be able to be a psychologist and do that very easily. Uh, so, so I'm not, I'm not willing to pay the price for that, even though I would like that. Right. And so I think approaching in general life is, am I willing to pay the price mm-hmm. for what I want and allow us to think, okay, is that that valuable for me? Mm-hmm. Approach it. Yeah. Am I willing to pay the price in order to have this relationship mm-hmm. and continue might be a, a helpful way to, to approach it. So hiking yesterday, right? Yes. And we're bringing in personal references at yes, this point, but I'm not the most physically confident individual. And so there was some like, oh, I don't know how that is. And I'm, I'm, but I'm relatively clear. There's just discomfort. We walk for whatever. And there's some like, you know, aches and pains or whatever by the end of the day. I am 100% willing to pay that probably mm-hmm. times 20 to have the experiences that we had, mm-hmm. right? Just to see the cool things and to do the cool things. I'm not personally willing to pay the price of that horrible walk where you have to hold on to the chain and, you know, (laughs) like they show the signs where like, and you like people die here every year, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's not on my list that I'm willing to pay for that experience. Other people Mm -hmm. do. That's cool. And, and understanding that difference and allowing that difference, Mm -hmm. I think is a big deal where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm so invested in this relationship. I'm willing to walk through hell for this person. We say that kind of stuff all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, what about, this particular hell, like the hell of, I'm afraid that they might reject me. I'm afraid that I'll put all this in and it might not work out. Yeah. I'm, I just want to interrupt you just for a minute Dude. because you're wrong. So I have actually hiked this hike called Angel's Landing and it is worth the price of it. For me, therefore, it should and must be for Carolyn <laughs> and yeah. for Brian, yeah. right? Unless I'm mistaken, yeah, right. And I think that that's where we're we're so often at that place of like our own personal point of reference. We want to impose that on others or, or, or assume that they value the same things in the same way that we do. And I think it's... And so they should. And, they, and, and we feel very much shitty about it. Right? Yeah, we get a little shitty about <laughs> right. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say uh, back to the original uh, point you're making, James, about like having this intention of like what is it that we want in this relationship. I think so often we start out with what is our kind of anxiety telling us about what's going to happen. And then we tend to react and respond to almost this worst case scenario or this um, fear. And I think that's what Carolyn was pointing out as well. Like the intention of like, I'm willing to pay this price, but what are we talking about there? And oftentimes it's about the fear of how bad it's going to be when we do disclose that. And so, yeah, it's really interesting to think about sharing like I, I'm clear about what I would like this relationship to be or clear about what I value in this relationship and letting it kind of go where it goes and letting go of that. Like it needs to end up at a certain point, but yeah, starting with maybe this, I do value these things independent of what happens in the end. And I'll work towards, you know, the things that I value versus I'm afraid that I'm going to lose something I really want. And therefore I'm going to go into this defensive mode of trying to save myself from my own pain and my loved one from, from their pain. Yeah, it's really interesting, like that kind of starting point, how that can really shape the experience. Ages ago, you mentioned sort of the experience of being a therapist and how that kind of changes how we think about things. Mm-hmm. And I think about that with this, where it's like, as as a therapist, you 
kind of have an outcome in mind, mm-hmm. but we're super clear about the limits of our control about that right. because it depends on how people hear what we say, how we hear what they say, whether or not they do the stuff we suggest, mm-hmm. all of these things. And we have to get really, really loose with that or mm-hmm. you burn out fast, right? Right, Or you get really negative about people. Like I think we've mm-hmm. seen sure. some professionals who do that, but when you just go, yeah, I super value this and I value this opportunity. I don't, I have no idea how it's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. Right. Or have, you know, a range of possibilities and I'm willing to put in the time and the effort and the whatever for the chance that this could be something cool. I, I, I love that for the chance that this could be something cool because so often I think on the believer's side of the relationship, it's pretty clear. Like we, I want you to believe and I want you to go to heaven and do all these things. And I want you to go, I want you to be part of our community in the same way that you always were. And so if you hold on to that rigidly, there's no, for the chance to see what this could be kind of experience. And I think as the, on the non-believer side of that relationship, you could also get very stuck in, and I want you to accept my new way of seeing things. And I want you to be good with it. And I want you to still love me. And I don't want to be rejected. If we start holding to those ideas rigidly, then we're also kind of like, we're not allowing for the chance that this can be something different than what our believing family members think it should be or what we think it should be. Um, like just not holding to that tightly. Yeah. Which is really hard not to do because those are innate human things. Mm-hmm. Reflexes. I mean, yeah. Those are, right. these are, <laughs> these are hardwired. Right. And so yes, to, to hold those thoughts slightly or those, I think even acknowledging that those are hardwired mm-hmm. most likely, there is going to be that pull and that resistance to mm-hmm. to that separation from these people, and then still hold that light. Right, there's a lot yeah. to ask, and very helpful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, I just want to thank you guys so much for having this conversation. I know um, we're here, and like James said, in, in St. George, um, hanging out and uh, doing fun things out in nature, and yeah, I just really value your your influence and impact in my life over the years um, working together. And um, yeah, these conversations are, are so important and it feels like so polarizing at times and difficult to look at what's happening underneath the actual words we're saying, you know, like just, I think being aware of some of the processes that we've talked about today uh, is going to be so helpful for, for individuals listening. It's helpful, helpful for me already just Carolyn talking about these different boxes and then the extra stuff we put in there because we have a box now. And then yeah. just, just considering like, do I want to put things in this box or not? Yeah. And yeah, I think just having some awareness and intention around that is, is so useful. Are there any other, um, do you guys have any kind of final thoughts? So as far as the, the box metaphor, uh, oftentimes if we come across information, you know, we, we have a choice. We can put them in boxes that we have, mm-hmm. or we can create new boxes. As we get older, we tend to choose a third option, which is ignore. Mm. And so we just, there's new information, and we just decide not to put it in any boxes because it's irrelevant to us. And so just to be mindful that we do that mm-hmm. and that that may not always be the most helpful way to, you know, experience life. Sometimes assimilate, mm-hmm. sometimes make accommodations mm-hmm. in our beliefs to fit new information when it's helpful. Mm-hmm. And other times to, yeah, decide that's really not going to impact me in any way. I don't mm-hmm. have to pay attention to that. So, so you're, you're, you're seeing that as functioning in this 
maybe avoidant way of like, I don't want to experience that, then also in this kind of useful way. Like, well, I don't have to react and respond to every belief that doesn't line up with my worldview. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but just be a little, just pay a little bit more attention uh, when you are just, so that you don't just dismiss everything new right. or place it in one of the boxes that we already have just without because, actually, yeah. yeah, without actually seeing how it might impact us. Yeah, that's really great. A little off topic. But no, it's not no. actually. I, 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 was, I was thinking about the way we live inside of concepts and constructs, and maybe it's for another another podcast um, interview or, or episode. But um, the idea of like most of the things we think of as real in our day to day life are simply constructs that we've created that have been useful. Like we talked earlier about color and, and sound, you know, like sound is just the, the, the waves moving in our ears, interpreting that as, you know, as, as distinct sounds and color is just, you know, light waves that our, our brain is interpreting. And so I think if we think about this in, in, in a spiritual context, in a religious context, and even in, as a non-believer, like so often we are experiencing something that exists as a, a concept that we have, but we're experiencing it as real and we're reacting and responding to it as if it's real and holding tightly to it and insisting that it has to be real. And just to know, just to recognize that all these boxes that we've created for various reasons and that serve various functions are, are constructs and, and they're useful because without them, it's hard for us to communicate. Without them, it's hard for us to be relational. Without them, it's hard for us to, you know, understand distinctions and, and examine things more closely. But within also not holding on to them. Yeah. And without them, we wouldn't be able to survive. Like if I didn't, <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> if I didn't put everything in boxes mm-hmm. and, and, and had to, like, think through everything I did all of the time, mm-hmm. I couldn't do anything. So right. it's really, really efficient. Super adaptive. Yeah. You have to have a box for danger and a box for things that are safe food mm-hmm. and you know, yeah. yeah. And friends and mm-hmm. rattlesnakes are dangerous. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, we don't have to think about these things and mm-hmm. that makes it that's how our brain is. It, it, it wants to be efficient. Yeah. And that's great. But we always don't want to just go that, that automatic way when we're faced with issues like how do I interact mm-hmm. with loved ones when I'm making this transition? That's a really good time to slow down, mm-hmm. to notice our thoughts, to notice what's going on, to notice our boxes, to mm-hmm. notice what we will do automatically, right. and then be able to make conscious choices moving towards what we want. Right. Because simply saying, you have the wrong box, <laughs> like that's so tempting because it is. It's it, it's true. Like that box doesn't fit me. I don't like being in that box. Or like your religious beliefs aren't useful for me, yeah. or they they're harmful for you, or, or whatever. Or just pointing out like the box is the wrong box misses this whole thing. Like, well, we all kind of have these constructs that we live inside of. Mm-hmm. I think there's a thing that I say a lot at work and take into my life, which is simple, not easy. So we say things like, well, just make a new box, accommodate the new information, Mm -hmm. right? Be kind and compassionate, be tolerant of other people's Mm -hmm. process. All those things. (laughs) Don't be an asshole. That's what a careless. It is super simple. Right. Not easy in the moment. Right. Like, just don't try to control their process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And that happens. It, right. Yeah, I think that that's really great to 
to be aware of that as we go through you know these transitions to to recognize that yeah some of the things we're talking about are really simple simple ideas but certainly challenging to actually incorporate into our lives and and Brian's trying to wrap it up, which I think is funny because I'm here and I like to tell <laughs> stories. So do I have time for one oh, more story? Do, yeah. Okay. Sure. So uh, when I was telling Carolyn that she was wrong mm-hmm. earlier on, don't ever do that unless you're being sarcastic and right. then very carefully because Carolyn <laughs> can throw stuff. <laughs> but, but that's with everybody. I mean, right. as soon as we tell mm-hmm. someone they are wrong, right. they are going to become defensive. Right. Strangers uh, on the internet don't know that I don't actually throw things. Yeah, she doesn't actually throw <laughs> things except for soft things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, speaking about Angel's Landing, my my wife, when, when we were young, we hiked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the way to the top. And that was a really cool experience for her. And then as she's gotten older, she's gotten a little bit more fear of heights and mm-hmm. she noticed that. And so she hiked it with my kids a, a few years ago and she wasn't able to go to the end mm-hmm. and they wanted to. And so allowing them to do that for her was very, very mm-hmm. terrifying. Yeah. And she, but she was able to allow them to do that because mm-hmm. they were older teenagers. So then we came back last year as a family and we wanted to hike it to the end as a family and she didn't know if she could do it. Mm. And so she practiced some mindfulness. She practiced breathing and just kind of mm-hmm. noticing feelings as they happen instead of buying into them mm-hmm. and thinking that because I feel afraid means that it's extremely dangerous. So right. become a little bit more flexible with that mm-hmm. danger box and realize it is dangerous mm-hmm. and also allowing her moment to moment to, to make choices if she wanted to continue or not. So allowing, so not, you know, she didn't, she was, she didn't promise that she was going to go to the end. She mm-hmm. was just going to go with the experience moment to moment of doing yeah. it. And she went to the end, which is fairly scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a fear of heights of at angels landing, when we got to the end, she said, I noticed my physiological reactions of fear, mm-hmm. but it didn't, seem nearly as scary as I had thought it would. Mm. And, but she still had that sense of accomplishment that I, you know, it had taken her months to prepare for that hike, Mm -hmm. getting in touch with not getting wrapped up in all of her thoughts and stories about what Mm -hmm. might happen or could happen. And it became worth it to her. Yeah. I think, I think it's a really, a really powerful example thinking about opening up to our experience as we maybe as individuals who are who have transitioned out of religion you know open up to our own kind of experience of how scary that is and you know the the fear that's around that and then you know having compassion for our loved ones as well as we um you know disclose to them things that are scary for them and i think what i'm hearing from a lot of this conversation is we need to be better i think providing resources for Believing with friends and loved ones, yeah. recognizing that it's a difficult journey for us. And like you mentioned earlier, James, of just wanting them to understand us or to hear us if we're not also aware that they also want to be heard and they want their experience to be validated as well. And then maybe they need resources for uh, breathing through a difficult experience that might feel very much like walking up the side of a cliff with a thousand foot drop offs holding onto a small chain, right? Like breathing through that being with that understanding that we can do difficult things in the service of what matters to us 
if we can connect around that that human relationship that really does matter. Maybe yeah. a resource that's not you. Like absolutely right? yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's and I, hard to find, much mm-hmm. less hard to trust. Right, because yeah, because I think imagine being that loved one who was like they could go to their church and we know how or their, you know, religious community, we know like that becomes this temptation to be like, well, we need to pray harder for your loved one or like this kind of like really getting stuck in this, you know, your loved one is wrong and we need to help them, you know, see the light or whatever. And then to be a believing family member who would be willing to speak with a secular person about their feelings around that and their process. Yeah, I think that that is really challenging, but I, I would certainly agree with you, Carolyn, that that person likely is not you as the person making that transition. You can facilitate that and be part of that and encourage that. But as far as like actually, I mean, obviously that's why our ethics um, don't allow us to practice therapy with with people we know and, and family members, especially because yeah, we bring too much to that relationship for uh, for it to be useful always. So. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks again. Um, it's been just so great having this conversation. And I, I really hope that as people listen, they will get something from this. Thanks so much, Carolyn. I just really appreciate you being here and doing this. And thanks, James, for hosting us down here in, in St. George. And I look forward to having more of these conversations in the future. Thank you. Thank you. It has been my honor to be your host on this episode of the podcast and to introduce you to two of my dear friends. I really appreciate Carolyn and James sharing their experience and expertise with us. We covered a lot of ground these past two episodes. If you would like to read, skim, or share a written version of our conversation, you can find a lightly edited transcript at roomtothrive.com forward slash blog. If you are navigating a deconversion or want to create more meaning and purpose on the other side of faith, I would love to hear from you. Transitions often require us to do our own personal work, but we don't have to do it alone. In my private practice and online, I help former believers navigate their deconversion with clarity and purpose so they can get on with creating a life of vitality and meaning beyond belief. Visit my website at roomtothrive.com to learn more. Be sure to check out Life After God on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at lifeaftergod.org. And if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, now is a great time to click subscribe in your podcast player. Thanks again for listening. This is Brian Peck sitting in for Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast.